Welcome to Unleashing Your Inner Man through powerful communication with your host, Tom Johnson III, bringing real conversations and practical tools to help you be the man you are meant to be. Okay, hello everyone. This is Tom Johnson III from Unleashing Your Inner Man. As always, I hope you, the listener and viewer, learn at least one thing from this podcast to improve the quality of your life or someone else's. Today, we have a fantastic guest. His name is Christopher Wallace, the advisor to men, who will be sharing his approach to solving the problem of addiction. Apparently, he has solved it. He's going to share that with us today. So there will be lots of good information in here. And yes, and Christopher, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here, Tom. Happy to talk about addiction anytime. Yeah, so um, we got some questions prepared, everyone, and we're going to go through them. Sometimes we go on tangents, sometimes we come back, you know, it's a conversation. That's what we're doing. So we'll just jump right into the uh, questions here, which I always like to start with what exactly we're talking about. So Christopher, what is your personal definition of addiction? Well, addiction is always a compulsive behavior that impacts your life negatively. Okay. Um, That's really, so it's a repeated compulsive behavior that impacts your life in a negative way. That's really all addiction is, you know, and, uh, you know, people always want to talk about the causes. Well, what causes addiction? And there's been theories about it that have been floated about for many years. I mean, the disease concept model is, 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 um, was a, is an advent. It used to be a moral failing. If somebody drank too much, you know, it was, it was, it was a, it, we viewed that person as weak. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, then with the advent of AA and uh, Bill W and, uh, and the, big, uh, the, the big blue book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we saw that there, there was more to it. And uh, I think the AA guys um, have it right. I think it's a denial of spirit, but I'll get to why I think that afterwards. Sure. So there's a disease model, which is good for insurance purposes. Um, if you are insured and you work somewhere and you want to be treated for, let's say, alcoholism, if it's a disease, the insurers will cover your, the cost of your treatment. So this is probably the stem that I think stems from the U.S. system, uh, and it's permeated around the world where a lot of people accept that it's a disease. And even if they don't really believe that it's a disease, they don't mind calling it a disease because it, it, it helps fit the insurance payments. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And then um, other people think it's a learned uh, behavior. So we can, we can blame it on mom and dad. Mom and dad did it. You know, it was my family of origin, my childhood, uh, you know, trauma. Uh, the ACE scores, the Adverse Child Experiences uh, study with Kaiser Permanent and them in the U.S. years ago discovered that um, most of the people who have um, addiction, they score your adverse childhood experiences on a scale of 1 to 10. Hmm. And anybody with a 4 and above is um, is prone to addiction. And they found that a lot of these, and it came out of an eating study, I believe. Uh, where they find that gals that were overeaters, addicted to food, uh, at all had been sexually abused uh, mm-hmm. when they were younger. So it started from there, but it's been expanded uh, greatly ever since to all kinds of different trauma. 
however, there's people with an ACE score of six and seven that aren't addicted. Hmm. You know, yeah. there's, there's people with have had terrible trauma and, and don't have any addictions. Hmm. So there's a resilience factor. There's, there's other things going on besides just trauma. Uh, connection, you had uh, Johan Hari with his uh, beautiful uh, TED talk. Uh, uh, the the, um, the cure for addiction is connection, mm. um, and uh, so this was a beautiful um, uh, TED talk. It's very very powerful. Um, and Portugal, uh, of course, legalized all drugs at one point, and um, and but the, the the interesting thing was is, is that and they and they didn't turn away drug addicts, but they still forced them into treatment and into different you know. Um, uh, roots of, of avenues of, uh, of, of care, hmm. but uh, their addiction level didn't, their addiction problem didn't go away, but it hmm. did attenuate when they legalized it. Hmm. Um, and, and they were, the, the whole um, connection thing was based on Rat Park studies in, done at uh, Simon Fraser University back in the 70s. Well, humans aren't rats. Hmm. Uh, we're not mice. So when you get rats and mice studies and then you extrapolate that information to human beings um, it's difficult it's challenging however there is a point you look at first nations uh, here in Canada the Indians in Canada who've had their culture just completely decimated or very very high addiction rates amongst them hmm. so there's definitely uh, it's definitely a contributing factor hmm. um, you know as um I just wanted to uh, clarify, um, what are different kinds of addictions? I think there's more than some people might be aware of. Well, it, that's the, it, it's easier to say that, you know, everything causes addiction and nothing causes addictions. Hmm. You know, it, it, it's almost easier to say that. Okay. And then there's addictions to food. Hmm. Overeating is, a, is definitely addiction. It's got a terrible health consequence. The obesity ep epidemic in North America is, is um Costing the healthcare system billions of dollars every year, and, and all kinds of early deaths, all kinds of problems. Um, you know, you, you get porn is, is the advent of the internet. Uh, you know, Pornhub is a, a huge business now, and uh, people can just look at porn on their cell phones. Hmm. So, porn addiction is a is another big um, distractor. Shopping, people go out and, and shop that lose themselves shopping. Uh, gambling, gambling addiction, definitely an addiction. A guy can, I mean, I've dealt with ga um, gamblers and uh, that intermittent reinforcement is a very, very powerful uh, learner uh, or, or learning modality. And uh, people can end up gambling their lives away. So, you know, gambling's a big, and then of course you've got drugs and alcohol, you've got cigarettes. I mean, Canada legalized cannabis last year, crying all out. So, um, so there's all kinds of different addictions. Anything that's really going to impact your life, that's compulsive and impacts your life negatively in a repeated sort of cycle, is it can be referred to as addictive. Okay. Um, so you covered a little bit about this on the uh, first question. Um, um, common factors are like genetics, the environment you grow up in, um, peer pressure, uh, mental illness, whatever that's defined as, um, contribute to the development of addiction. Could you elaborate on that some more? Well, that's a really good question. And I'm, I'm glad that I like the, the way you've listed your questions. But first, because I'm going to answer it this way. I'm going to first ask you, have you ever been afraid? Oh, yes. 
So when we're afraid, what happens is our, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure rises, our breathing shallows, and our thinking narrows. So if you're on a, a highway and it's in a snowstorm or a rainstorm and you come around a corner and there's a wreck in front of you, your your heart rate will, you know, your heart will jump into your throat, they call it, you know, and your your blood pressure will rise and your breathing will shallow. Or, but you'll find that one little spot that you can aim your car so that you avoid the wreck and the accident, or maybe there's a deer on the road or something in your way, and you and you can just find that one little narrow opening and get out. Oh, safely, and I made it. Hmm. That's fight or flight. No, no, no uh, nothing. Um, um, you know, so it's not rocket science, but that's what. The, so what happens when we drink? Well, uh, you have two beers, your heart rate goes up your blood pressure rises, your breathing shallows, and your, your thinking narrows. Hmm. And what lies at the crux of all addiction is a narrow of, narrowing of thinking, hmm. narrowing of thoughts. This is what is really behind it all. So that's what people are looking for. They're looking, they're, when people always make a big deal about dopamine. Dopamine has a fact, is a factor in the learning, but the real um, effect of um, uh, uh, using drugs or alcohol or any kind of an addiction is to narrow thinking. That's what people are after. That's the relief that we get. Because when we can narrow thinking, we can um, uh, we can obtain relief. And I'll give you an example. So a guy goes to a bar on a Friday, hmm. and this is a men's. Am I allowed to swear here at all? Can I cuss as much as you want? And I apologize if, if anybody that offends anybody. My father was a sailor, and as a little boy, we were allowed to cuss. Uh, he said it was good old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon expressions of emotions, he used to call it. As long as we didn't cuss at him or mom or at each other, but we could swear. And he was the sailor. So so when I swear now, I, I tell people I'm honoring my father. Anyways, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Sure. So... Guy goes to a bar on a Friday, he's got his paycheck, cashes his check, he's got his truck payment, he's got his mortgage, he's got the wife at home, he's got the kids, he's got his boss, he's got his clients, he's got something he's got to fix at home. There's a leaky faucet, there's a, a toilet that needs to be swapped out. He's got all of these things on his mind. Hmm. He has two beers, and all of a sudden now all he's thinking about is pizza and pussy. Hmm. Or, or maybe sports. Hmm. He's just watching the game now. He's narrowed his thinking. That's what it does. You get somebody who smokes cigarettes and, you know, they're, they're working away at the office and they've got all of the different pressures in the office going on. There's a deadline they've got to meet. They're, they're having to cooperate on a, on a team at work and on and so forth. And it all just becomes a little bit too much. I'm going out for a smoke. They go out for a cigarette and ostensibly to relax them. But we know a cigarette can't relax you. You have a cigarette right away, the nicotine, and your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up right away. And your your breathing shallows, and but your thinking narrows, and that's the relief that people are looking for. So, at the crux of all addiction, is this is this um, um, is is this you're trying to um, narrow your thinking. You're trying to take your thoughts and turn them into fewer thoughts or different thoughts. Even mm. somebody who overeats, you know, if you you I'm trying to stay on a diet, and then I slip, and I have my I, I eat a box of donuts. Well, now I'm into this recrimination of the self-recrimination of, oh, I'll never get, I'm so ugly. I'm a loser. Well, mm. that, 
that drama, that self-imposed drama is relief. Because while you're doing that, you're not thinking about your bills, your job, your relationships, you know, it's just, it's an, it's a form of escape. It's kind of a, a nasty form of escape, but that's mm. what it is. It's very, sounds very comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And you can get used to it. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess that would answer the question. What is the purpose of addiction that we were, I was going to ask Yeah, to yeah. narrow the thoughts and yeah, um, just, it really is at the crux of all addiction is a quest to narrow thinking. That's really what what we're trying to do. And and then I notice on your next question, you have factors such as genetics, environment, trauma, peer pressure. We sort of covered a little bit those of addictions. And what is the purpose? Well, that's the purpose of addiction is to try to narrow thinking. That's what we're trying to do. Everybody gets hung up on the buzz, you know. Um, but that's not what you're, that's not, it's not the buzz. Because you'll see a lot of people when they first get addicted to a drug. Now, you get the odd person in, in care will say, well, I, you know, I tried everything, but then when I hit heroin, I was like, I found home, you know, <laughs> or, uh, you know, it, it, and, and so we call that their drug of choice, right? Mm. But that's a self-report from somebody who's coming off an addiction. So I don't know how reliable that is, but I'll tell you this. Mm. First time I drank, I had, I got a six pack of, I was 11 years old in grade seven. And I went with some, some of the older boys. I went to one of those intermediate schools where you leave your neighborhood and you go to a, a sort of an older school. And it's, it's got kids from a catchment area from all over the place. So I've met kids that I'd never met before. And, you know, I was on a Friday night trying to fit in and I got a six pack and I had four beers and then I fell asleep. And I was worried, what am I going to do with these other two beers after? Once I woke up, I, I fell asleep in the field. So it wasn't really that pleasant. Hmm. Uh, first time I smoked, you'll see a lot of people, first time they see it, they hack and they cough, hmm. but they hmm. persist. They persist and they, and they keep, and they, and they, uh, until they're habituated, until they're able to handle that. First time you do cocaine, uh, you know, you scare the shit out of you. You'll, you'll, you'll shit your pants right away. Uh, hmm. Morphine gives you pins and needles all over. Um, so there's the effects of drugs and alcohol or doing them at first are, are not always pleasant. Even the first time you go out on a shopping spree and somebody spends $2,000 and they've maxed their credit cards, well, that takes some getting used to, hmm. you know? You have to overcome that pain of, man, I just maxed out my credit cards. I don't have to spend the next six months paying them off. So there's all, and first time a guy goes gambling and, and he loses a pile of money, he's got to overcome that somehow. So the, the quest to narrow their focus is such a powerful uh, thing, but it's not, the, it's not because they got a great buzz off of it, and that's why they got addicted. That's a completely different uh, situation. Well, that, that kind of leads into, um, like, um, what are some common reasons why people overcome addiction? Um, um, it's my understanding that the first step is to admit I'm addicted to XYZ, so I'm just I'm, I'm really curious, what, what are some common things you believe that cause them to overcome it? Well, definitely, um, I find that when people understand the process, so here's, here's, first of all, it's important to understand why, how, what, what's happening, what you're after. You know, when I'm using, when I realize that I'm using and I'm putting myself into a fear state, I'm putting myself into a mild fight or flight state so that I can narrow my thinking. Well, that's a different sort of 
um, concept or a different sort of understanding than just, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting drunk so that I can get a buzz. Mm. Because the buzz is, is selfish. It's like me feeling good, like a little baby in the bath, you know, in mm. warm water, playing with toys. No, 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 no. I'm narrowing my thinking. It's not just because so I can feel good. It, it, so, so once people understand that part, it's, it's pretty important. But I want to talk about dopamine. Because hmm. everybody thinks it's the buzz, it's the high. What dopamine's biggest role is, in addiction is, is in, in, in the learning part of it. I believe addiction is a learned behavior. Okay. So when you use a drug or the way we learn stuff in general is through the pons and the striatum and the infralimbic uh, uh, center of the brain, which are, are, are the, if you look at the triune brain and the, you know, the monkey brain and then mm-hmm. the, the next development and then the cortex, it's at our basic levels that we learn. So I'll give you an example. The best way is to is explain. So yeah. when you rode a bike as a child, first time you rode a bike, maybe you had training wheels, maybe you didn't, but the first time you did, it's very, very difficult to ride a bike because you've got to hang onto the handlebars You've got to also pedal. You've got to hold yourself up for balance. You've got to make sure that you don't crash. You've got to worry about getting hit by cars. There's a lot of things going on to ride a bike. There's seven or eight critical behaviors that if you don't do them, um, you, you fall down and you hurt yourself, especially as a child, right? So that learning takes place at a very primitive level in the brain, having to do with balance, having to do with your emotional centers, the infralimbic system. And, you know, once you learn that, if you don't ride a bike for 20 years, what happens when you get on a bike? You can ride it again. You can ride it again. You yeah. never forget it. Right. right. You hop on a bike, a couple of wobbles, off you go. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you don't ride a bike for 40 years. If you don't ride a bike for 40. I haven't ridden a bike for at least five because I had my son and some stopped riding bikes. I jump on that bike. I ride it like it was nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens with addiction. It's like riding a bike. Because addiction is learned at those very primitive levels of the pond striatum and infralimbic system. It's called dopamine chunking. So there's a lot of those seven or eight little behaviors involved in 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 learning riding the bike. That becomes one thing called riding a bike. Mm-hmm. And so we can we can pull that out of our hat anytime we want and jump back on and do it again. And this is why addicted people, you know, you get a drinker who drinks uh, you know uh, twelve beers every night. And he stops drinking. He doesn't drink for five years. And then he relapses. Shit goes wrong in his life and whatever happens. And, and he's, he starts to drink again. He's, I'll just have one or two. I, you know, I got this under control. Within a few weeks, he's back to 12 beers a night. Mm. He's riding the bike. Mm-hmm. You see? Yeah. You get somebody who's a heroin addict. They were up to half a gram of heroin a day. That's what they did. They did two shots. A quarter gram in the morning, quarter gram in the night. So first they, 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 they relapse, they do a little chip, half a tenth, then a little bit more, a little bit more. Within two weeks, they're back to half a gram a day. Hmm. You know, Cocaine, same thing, gambling, same thing. And they may even go further because now they have the, the self-recrimination of relapse on their mind as well. So they beat themselves up even harder. So they're, so they're, they're trying to narrow their thinking even more to escape the, all the self-recriminating uh, thoughts and, and feelings uh, that they may even go further than they were last time. And then that means if they quit again and then relapse again, they'll go back to that level. It's riding the bike. 
it sounds all it's sounds kind of similar to like riding the bike is it you know the, the goal is to not crash to not to not feel pain to to right. focus on staying on that bike it's kind of almost like a survival kind of thing and then mm-hmm. you just kind of it, the same analogy so um yeah. someone does their thing with whatever drug of choice or whatever they're doing mm-hmm. and then they relapse and it's like yeah. and they get back into it so fast because it's like it's like programmed at the like the most what's the word central level primitive of levels primitive level yeah. primitive level it's like yeah. makes total sense yeah and that's and that's what um, dopamine chunking does, and a lot of our learning becomes that. You know, uh, brushing your teeth has a whole bunch of different little small behaviors to it, but it becomes one thing: brushing your teeth. You know, and there's a, a whole host of your daily activities that you've used dopamine chunking to master, um, mm. to so that you can accomplish it. And because the brain can't then think of all of those little small steps all the time. It just becomes one thing, brushing my teeth or whatever it is. And so that's, that's really what it is. So dopamine chunking it represents, dopamine's uh, role in an addiction represents the learning. Now, they, well, what about overeating? Well, we've discovered, see, and I told these people this for a long, long time, but just a few months ago, they discovered that through the right vagus, the, the, the 100,000 neurons that line your gut, Hmm. send signals to the dopamine receptors in your brainstem on the hmm. right side of the vagus of the 10th cranial nerve. So, so overeating, so you eat the donut and it feels pleasurable sending a signal. And so that dopamine chunking, that learning, and that's what helps you narrow focus. So that, so eating does it, gambling does it, porn does it, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, all do the same thing. And so it's, it's a, it's and all the quest is always to narrow thinking. We don't realize that that's what it does, but that's what it does. And um, so, so then you go on to the next part. You say, well, okay, so that's how addiction happens. So it's a quest to narrow thinking. Dopamine chunking is what helps us learn and maintain the behavior. It's like riding a bike, you know, mm-hmm. that's why, that's why the people in AA very wise, they say, well, you should quit never drink again and they give you a, 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 a medallion for one year two years five years ten years to to encourage your sobriety because just uh, instinctively from experience and their instinct is that no no you can't drink again if you and that's just where they call it a disease but what it really is it's like riding the bike hmm. you got to stay off the bike because you're going to go right back to ride the bike again. Mm, <laughs> you know what I mean, mm, so, mm. so that's a, and when I explain that to people who are drinkers or long time uh, uh, drug users or even gamblers or overeaters, they get it right away. Mm, mm. You know, you got to stay off the bike. So now here's the other problem. So most people exist in a, in a slight fight or flight state most of the time, especially out socially. Mm. But if you jack your system up, with drugs, alcohol, or, or even your thinking, your emotional state, if you jack that up to a fear state by, by using drugs, alcohol, or other stuff, can you be, the, here's the question, and, and I call this the sensory input confidence continuum. Can you be fearful and confident at the same time? And most people will admit that no, you can't. You might mm. jump back and forth between one and the other, mm. 
right? Just like a multitasker does is really that you think they're multitasking, but they're, you know, if you watch their eyes, they're, they're looking at two things. It's the same thing emotionally. You can't feel two emotions at the same time. So if you feel, if you put yourself consistently, and I'm not talking about somebody who does it once a month or smokes the odd joint with his buddies uh, on a weekend or something like that. But if you're a chronic smoker and you're waking up every day and you're smoking a joint or you're going home every day and you're smoking a joint, well, over time, you're consistently putting yourself into a fear state. Well, over time, your confidence has to wane. It has to go down. It has to. Just because the amount of time you put your body into a fear state means that you you cannot have confidence during that time. Mm. And over time, you'll see that confidence wanes. It's called the sensory input confidence continuum. Mm. And, and, and it, it, it's what, what you're doing... I have a Nietzsche quote for you, right? Because you have to have a mandatory these days. You have to have a Nietzsche quote. quote yeah. <laughs> yeah. All, all credibility, kind of a joke. All credibility, all good conscience, all evidence of truth comes only from the senses. Hmm. So if you disrupt your, your homeostasis, you must introduce, because your, your, your brain relies on your sensory inputs to make sense of the world. So as soon as you disrupt that, you must experience doubt. You, you, your brain has to stop and question, oh, what's going on here? The, the regular channels of information are being disrupted. You're put into doubt. Well, if you're in doubt, you're not confident. Mm. And, and, and so now we say, well, well, so what? I'm not confident. Well, confidence is kind of damn important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, like, in, in fact, it's your juice, mm. you know, and it's fucking hard-earned. Confidence is the stuff that takes thoughts and turns them into actions. So without confidence, your life stagnates. You go nowhere. Not that you go nowhere, but you, you don't go uh, places as quickly. That's for sure. Mm. And it takes, it, it's, a, it's a lot of work to build confidence. You know, confidence comes from a, a couple of different things. One is taking big risks, you know, and you'll, you'll watch a child who's afraid to go on the, the roller coaster at the, at the, at the fair. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And then they muster the, the balls to get on that ride. And they go on the ride and they come off and they jump off. And the first thing they say when they get off is again. Mm-hmm. Let's do it again. Because now that child has changed. They just went from a child who could not ride the roller coaster to a child who can now ride a, a roller coaster. They've become somebody different. They're now, they're more. They've added to their lives. Now, I'll give you another example. Toastmasters, you're afraid of public speaking. If you get up at Toastmasters and give a speech and you don't die, the next day you're a new person. You're, you're an added. There's something more. You're different because now you're a person who can give a, a, a talk in front of people. So now at weddings or at uh, suppers, or you're, you're the go-to guy. You can do that now. That's confidence. So you can get confidence from big risks. You take a risk and it, pay, it pays off. And you become something more. That's one way. The second way is a small incremental um, mastery of something over time to where you gain a sense of competence. And so, you know, you, you may, maybe you're writing. And at first, you're not that confident about your writing. But if you keep writing and, and you keep getting, you know, correcting and keep learning new things. And, well, a few years later, you feel pretty good about when you start writing, you know. And it could be anything violin it could be piano it could be uh you know building a, a table in the garage you know so that's where confidence comes from so confidence 
is such an important thing. And I tell you, we know when we don't have confidence. We know when we lack confidence. And you know what? It's, it's fucking painful. You know, when we lack confidence, if we admit to ourselves, man, that hurts, man. You know, I wasn't very confident. We sense our weakness. So let me, now let me, we need to understand this. That means if I put myself into a fear state, I can't be confident. So what I'm really doing when I'm drinking is I'm sipping on fear. And I'm, you know how you, you drink and then you got to go to the washroom. I'm mm. sipping on, not beer, I'm sipping on fear and I'm pissing out my confidence. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. not beer anymore. You're not drinking beer. Mm. I love I love having beer drinkers as clients because I replace the word beer with fear. Beer. Mm. I'll have another fear. Oh shit! Hang on a minute. I don't know if I want that. You know, mm. have another fear. Uh, you know, I'm gonna sip on fear and piss up at my confidence. Cannabis smoker. I'm inhaling fear and exhaling my power as a man. I'm exhaling my confidence. Mm. October 17th last year, Canada legalized marijuana. I call it Canada's non-confidence day. Because all over the land now, people are smoking dope, and they're just a little less confident. And that makes us just a little more placid mm. and a little less engaged in society. Mm. I don't think it's a good thing. Mm. You know, I don't think it's a good thing. So that confidence is a big thing. Now, here's, here's the, the tragic part about losing confidence. We need confidence for everything. It's really your your agency as a human being. It's part of your magic that you grow and you become something better and on and so forth. And and when we escape that, like pain teaches us. That kid who was afraid to go on the roller coaster and then he went on the roller coaster and after that he says again, that pain that he confronted it made him something new. Same with the guy who stands up at a Toastmaster meeting or at a wedding or something and gives a speech. He became something, it was painful, but they broke through it. Well, those little painful episodes happen every single day, all of our lives. And what they do is they, remember I told you confidence comes from that, from a lot of small incremental um, uh, sort of mastery of something. Well, that's what life is, hmm. right? That's what life is. So hmm. if we escape that, that, that emotional pain of life for many, many years, what happens is, is you, you wake up at, you know, and, and that confidence, you, you have, you've never built it. And here's what goes on. Five years can go by, 10 years can go by, 20 or 30 years can go by. And then maybe if you're lucky to you talk to a guy like me, or you may realize it on your own. If you're really, if you have a moment of uh, an epiphany, you know, a moment of, of real truth with yourself, you may realize that you didn't just live 20 years. What you did was you lived a version of one year 20 times. Yeah, gonna, and that's a sad ass. That's a sad ass motherfucking thing to do in life. Yeah. To realize you wasted so much time and yeah. the time went by. Yeah. yeah. I'm, and it goes like that. We all think we have time and none of us do. So that's the important thing. That's the leverage that I would put out to people and ask them to say, ask themselves, how much more fear do I need to put into my body? Mm. so that I can lose more of my confidence, mm. you know, either by eating or using porn or gambling or using drugs, alcohol, cigarettes. How much more fear do I need to, to introduce into my day so that mm. I can lose more of my confidence? Think about it. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to relate a personal story here about the fear and confidence thing. Um, I, um, 
and why confronting the fear is a, a great thing about building the confidence. Um, I'm a, I, I marry people on the weekends here in Japan. The very right. first time I did it, it's, it's, it's public speaking basically. And um, I was waiting in a room and they would play a certain kind of music and then I would come out of the room. When I was waiting in that room, I was so scared shitless that I had to pee like so bad. <laughs> I had my, I had I had a two liter thermos with me. I drank all the water, and I had the whole. I had my I had my um, my priest gown and everything on, and I filled up my thermos with my pee. And then, because I, I was so scared, <laughs> the very first time, and I mean, they played the music. I have to go out. You know, the people paid for the wedding. These people are getting married. Yeah. Well, if you're lucky, you only have one. And so I get out there and. I'm just so nervous. I say, I say the bride's name wrong. Um, and that's the most important part of, of the whole thing. When I do the yeah. vows, it's just, I could just see in their faces. They're like, ah, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah. Now, now when I was done, I was like, wow. Like it wasn't that bad. And then yeah. I don't even say now, um, I do it like every weekend. So, um, these yeah. little steps, it's kind of a two at the same time. Little step at a time. Yeah. When I, when I do the vows, particularly, without fail, both the bride and the groom will cry. The guy does his best not to. He's like, uh, yeah. uh, like he's like putting pointing his face up and going, <gasps> yes. and so yeah. I'm just gonna say, if you're um, my personal connection to this addiction thing with the confidence and the fear, confront your fear. If you're addicted, yeah. Yeah, you could see it. And, you know, now you're on your game. Mm-hmm. Now you deliver a really powerful ceremony for them. And, mm-hmm. and the proof is, is that you evoke this emotion in the bride and groom. And the first day you did it, you came back and you realized, I didn't die. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't, you know, it didn't destroy me. So that gave you the impetus to go. Now, the important thing to remember here is that when you finish that first wedding, that you didn't go back in thirsty and take a drink out of that thermos because I did not. You would, <laughs> I would have been a surprise. Now, if you told me that, I would have been, oh my God, this is over the top. But so, but yeah, and that's where confidence comes from, Tom. That's what you do. You take risks and you'll see it in children. I have a six and an eight year old. We live on 200 acres just outside the, the city. And I watch what they do and I watch how they tackle life. And it's little incremental improvements like that all the time. And sometimes it's big risks. You know, they climb a, my, my um, six-year-old is, was medically delayed. He had a pile of problems. That he wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the medical system. And especially the uh, care of his mother, who was, uh, who was just a champion with him. Um, but you know, you watch this kid taking risks and, uh, last year he couldn't climb a tree this year. He's climbing them, you know, but he mm-hmm. went a little bit slowly and he asked and he's, and he followed his sister and his sister's like up in the top branches, you know? So, mm-hmm. but, and this is how we do it. And so confidence is absolutely key. And I try to convince people to, to help them realize that you shouldn't compromise confidence at all because it's your juice. It's what you need to do. You, mm-hmm. if you had no confidence, and you shied away and never did those, you'd be missing out on all those wonderful ceremonies that you get to participate, that you have the, the privilege of participating in every yeah, day. Awesome. So that's the thing. So a lot of people say, okay, well, that's interesting. Now we understand that addiction is a, is a narrowing of, of thinking. Mm-hmm. All right. I understand how I became addicted. 
dopamine chunking. I understand the consequence, which is that I'm giving up my confidence, the sensory input confidence continuum. Mm. So how do I fix it? See, that's the next thing. How do mm. we fix it? So what I like to do, uh, behavioral science is my background. Mm. So I like to people, I like for people to, to I, I usually have people write these down, but to figure out the exact moment that they crave something. Okay. Feelings live in the body hmm. and um, it, your, your brain it, consciousness is very slow. So if something makes it into consciousness, it's, it's already happened. Hmm. Um, it, it, so, and, uh, and so our body is made to keep us safe and the brain is a, pre a prediction machine. Hmm. So when we crave something, it's the body telling the brain that something's missing. And then it comes into consciousness, and we interpret it as a craving. It's, it's this, this overwhelming sort of compulsion that sort of hits us. And right at that moment, I ask people to write down those circumstances, and I'll tell you why. I think, um, well, I ask people, does the universe make mistakes? Does it? No. Oh, is, is a cloud malformed? No, a cloud is a cloud. You know? <laughs> a cloud's a cloud, right? Yeah. Hmm. So the universe doesn't make mistakes. So we established that. Well, let's get real. There was from 40 to 1.2 billion sperm in the ejaculate, right? That, that where you came from. Hmm. And out of those 40 to 1.2 billion possibilities, one sperm made it to the egg, hmm. right? You, you could have been a girl. You could have had no arms, no legs. You could have had all kinds of developmental issues, right? But no, Tom is the one who made it to the egg. Hmm. And I say this to everybody else. You're the one that made it to the egg. The universe hmm. doesn't make mistakes. So why would you get chosen out of all of those possibilities, 40 to 1.2 million possibilities that you made it to the egg? So there's a reason for that because the universe doesn't make mistakes. That's an important thing. So the same force that created a billion stars in the Andromeda galaxy hmm. put you here. Hmm. Same force. Hmm. You know, you may have trauma. You may have a, a difficult family of origin. Shitty things may have happened to you. But hang on a minute. The universe had a plan, you know. The universe had a plan for you. And so what I, I like to understand is that when that craving hits us, I believe it's a calling from the universe for our spirit to become more active. Mm -hmm. Carl Jung said that we had an, an inner self. This is our true self. Mm -hmm. Then we have ego. That's the stuff that we've learned from everybody else, learning how to conform. And then we have personae, the masks that we wear. I'm a one guy at work. I'm another guy when I'm on the baseball field. I'm another guy with my missus on a date night. I'm another guy when I'm hanging around the boys. These are these persona that we wear. Mm -hmm. But all of those things obscure the true self, the real mm -hmm. self, the person inside, your spirit, right? Mm -hmm. So... At the, at the very moment that you're triggered to use, right, I think it's your spirit calling for you to be more powerful. You know, 
it, it doesn't matter where that trigger happens. It could be when you see a liquor store, maybe you're trying to quit drinking and you see the liquor store, there's a, there's, it's your spirit calling. That's what that trigger is. It's your spirit calling you to be more powerful. Well, what is more powerful? Well, this is the interesting thing about it. So, you've, 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 you've had a time where you've, you've, maybe as a child, maybe as an adult, where you've been so engrossed in something, the time went by really quickly. And all of a sudden you say, oh shit, where'd the time go? Hmm. You know, like five hours went by, hmm. right? So this happens to us as children and sometimes it happens to us as adults. We're having such a good time, time goes right by. So this is common, when there's a, a confluence of your, your, your passion, something that you like doing, and your strengths, something that you're probably good at, and something that's challenging requires 100% of your focus, and it has an incremental challenge to it. It gets more difficult over time. So when you first ride a bike, you're wobbly, but after a while, you get really good at riding a bike. You can get the same thing with baseball, with everything we do, right? We can master it. Well, when we can get into that, we can get into something that's called our flow, flow state, right? Or the zone, they call it, right? When those three things happen, and there's incremental uh, difficulty to it, and we're mastering that, that's the flow state. I believe that the trigger, the moment that we're triggered, it's the universe, it's our, demanding our spirit be more powerful, mm. to rise and be that person that we were supposed to be. That's what I think is really happening. So that, that's what, that's what I, I think that most people miss, that it's a denial of spirit. And, 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 I'll, and I'll prove it to you another way. What happens when people get freaking stoned and they're all smoking cannabis? Oh man, I'm so zoned out right now. Fuck, there's the clue. Zone. The, word, the words, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They yeah. even say it. You know what I mean? Man, I was in a zone last night, man. I was drinking. I was on that dance floor, man. You see that cute chick? Zone, buddy. Mm. You know? This is what the, the universe is demanding for. So, so... I believe that's what really is, is happening. And if we can learn to do that more often. So what I teach people to do is this, when you feel that craving, when you feel that trigger, how else can I be more powerful in that instant? In, in that instant? What else can I do that will satisfy me by being more powerful? Because that's what the universe is demanding from me. It's demanding that I, that I take my talents, my strengths, my, my experience, and put them into something Good for me. Good for the universe. Good for everybody else. Right? This is the this is the rule, and um, that's what really is happening. And when we deny the spirit, that's why I think addiction is a denial of the spirit. When we deny the spirit and we shortcut and we eat a box of donuts or we go and watch porn and and, and masturbate or we we drink eight beers and narrow our thinking that way, uh, what we're really doing is well, is it is it lasting? No, no, it's no, like no. a dog chasing its tail. The next day, you got to do it again. Mm -hmm. It's like a dog chasing its tail. That's us. We're the dog chasing its tail. Meanwhile, our confidence is going down. Mm -hmm. And life is, and time, linear time keeps moving. And I'll tell you something else. When we are triggered and we rise to the challenge and we throw ourselves into something so that we're in our zone, it's the only time humans can stop time. Mm. That's how powerful it is. Yeah. Holy it's, uh, shit. Four hours went by. Man, I thought I was here for an hour. Oh, now you're now you've got your juice running. 
Mm-hmm. And what happens to your confidence when you do that? Well, mm-hmm. jumps up, jumps up. You ratchet that, that confidence up more and more and more. And before you know it, you recognize that that trigger was resistance from the outside world that, that and your organism, the universe built you so that you could overcome that. So that's why I take go towards that resistance. So you're triggered, find something to be powerful at. This is a calling from your spirit to get in your zone, to find your flow state right now. You, 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 you owe it. And, and this is something else. I try to tell people, it's not because you want to, but you should. It's not because you can, but certainly you can, but it's also what you owe. There was 40 to 1.2 billion other sperm that didn't win the race, that all wanted the shot, but you got the shot. You got the shot. So what are you going to do with that? It's what you owe. It's not just what you want or what you can do. It's what you owe. Mm. That's what we're supposed to do. Because a man who uses his power in service of himself and the people around him finds meaning and freedom. That's the key. This is where we find freedom. Oh, dear God. I have a... I have a, I have an, as you were talking, just, just made me like click, clicked in my head exactly the fear, the trigger, the uh, craving and the call from the spirit and the confidence. Just all, let me tell you what, what I uh, discovered on my own. Um, I had a, probably still died on scum. Um, when I would get stressed out or had the craving, it would be for any kind of sugary food. Um, mm-hmm. And then I would eat it until I felt sick. And after, after it started all tasting the same and pretty crappy, I was like, you know what, if I, instead of looking over the refrigerator, I'm going to do a push up. Um, for the longest time in my life, I could not do, I couldn't do a push up until maybe six years ago. I could do like maybe one on my knees. I got up to like, um, 130 kilograms, 287 pounds about. And then now doesn't happen as often but now i will say if i feel like the craving the calling of the spirit as you say mm-hmm. i do some push-ups and i'm like oh i just i'm like i'm like i can do push-ups now i can keep doing it if i want to and then right after that whatever i want to do then boom totally in the zone and time just flies so oh that's beautiful i like everything that. yeah everything this man <laughs> like that it- we, we call that intermittent reinforcement or sorry, not, not, not uh, inter- intermittent reinforcement. Oh, I can't even think of the term, but what you're doing is you're replacing one thing with the other. Hmm. Oh, I can't even remember the damn term now because it's the first, by the way, Tom, hmm. you know, it was seven in the morning. I had to get up at six twenty in the morning to get on this podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> and you sent me that you sent me the schedule and it's, and it was all 7 a.m. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> But what is called is an incompatible behavior. Okay. Hmm. That's one of the greatest tricks you can possibly use uh, to defeat a craving is to use an incompatible behavior. Hmm. And, and so eating sugar and a push-up, they're incompatible. Hmm. Hmm. Right? Uh, you, you know, you want to take a cigarette, but you take a walk instead. Hmm. Or you run up a flight of stairs. It's an incompatible behavior. One is healthy, one is unhealthy. Right? Hmm. So the incompatible behavior is a really great short-term uh, trick, and I'm really glad you brought it up, uh, to, to get through that moment of craving. But understand that incompatible behavior that you put in 
is to, and I like the way you did a push-up because now you're engaging the body because feelings live in the body. We're not a separate entity, the mind and the body. This is, you may have an address outside. You may have a, a, a number on your house or on your street or an apartment number on your door, but the universal address of your existence is this body. Hmm. It's your body. This is where you live. All right. This is your universal address. If the universe comes looking for you, it's here. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's not at your address. So when you take control of the body, you now can take control of the being. You know. So when you take a push up like that, you've given you and you've given yourself a little bit of time. You're now introducing um, health and and you're 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 allowing your spirit to manifest. Hmm. You know. You're you're answering a little bit. Ah, I won't do that. I'll do this instead. And then you can take that from there and do something even better. Maybe you'll do more push-ups. Maybe you'll go and do something a little more healthy. Maybe you'll start writing. Maybe whatever it is that you need to do. But I, I, I encourage people to try to find the flow state. And they won't always find it because the flow state is a, is a uh, it takes a, a high degree of concentration. Uh, and it, it takes something that you, that you have to naturally be sort of, you know, um, not necessarily good at, but you, you have to like doing it mm. and it has to play on your strengths, lots of focus, and it has to have incremental complexity to it so that it keeps you engaged mm-hmm. um, and so that you can get better and better at it. But that's really what it's a calling for. It's a calling to be more powerful. <clears throat> and even if that power is just manifests itself as I can do a push up instead of eating a donut, well, that's powerful. Mm. You know, that's powerful now. And here's the other cool thing. So instead of eating that donut, which would have hit the dopamine systems and would have, you know, contributed to the dopamine chunk and, and entrenched that learned behavior in you, the push-up now has broken that pattern. And the more times, and this is the way feelings work, <clears throat> because the brain is predictive, and the brain is trying to put you in it into the best uh, guess emotional state at any given time, and it does it out of awareness, subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll give you an example. You come home, uh, you know, after work, and you find that you're kind of a little bit snappy with the missus or with the kids. And then suddenly you realize, you know what? I haven't eaten since 10 o'clock this morning. It's my body telling me that you got to feed me. And mm. so that's, and so and you don't even realize it, but maybe you got a little bit snappy. So then you eat and then you go, oh, geez, I'm sorry, kids. I mean, I was a jerk when I came home because I was hungry. Dad was mm. hungry or whatever. Mm. So that's the body ruling. And so, the, the brain uses what's happening in the body interoceptively to put you in the best possible state to meet the circumstances. And it does this beneath awareness and it corrects after the fact, according to the social reality before you. Hmm. And what it relies upon to, to put you into that emotional state is your data bank of previous experiences all the way back to, to birth. Hmm. So this is this is an absolutely critical thing to learn because it means that the only way to create new feelings is to live new experiences. Hmm. So if you're used to going for the donut and then you have a push-up instead, oh, that's one. Now you do it again. Craving, push-up. Hmm. It's two, three. Well, you do that 15 or 20 times. Whenever you get a craving, you, it's a craving for a push-up now. It's not a craving for a donut anymore. I feel like doing a push-up. Ah, now you're, you've now replaced that. And this is how everything works. Somebody has a death in the family and the, the, the widow goes home 
and she keeps, you know, condolences to anybody who's experienced the death of their family. I'm, I'm around it a lot, and uh, and I and I, I feel deeply for those people. But hmm. when somebody goes home and they keep a shrine to the deceased, and they don't change anything in the house, everything stays exactly the same. Hmm. Well, their grief goes on a lot longer. Hmm. But but the widow who goes home and 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 has a period of mourning. And, uh, and, um, and, and then gets out and starts to go to the church and maybe to the bazaar and then bingo with the gals. And maybe she starts doing community service. Maybe she has a job. And she starts taking greater interest in her grandchildren, whatever it is. Hmm. That widow will, will recover faster because hmm. she's living new experiences. She's creating greater experiences uh, to, that she can then build upon uh, to create better fe- and new hmm. feelings. Better and this yeah. is true for everything. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens with addiction is that we stifle those feelings over uh, over a number of years, and and so what happens and, and that emotional muscle that we need to go go into life powerfully, confidently is lacking. So we mm-hmm. got to build it up. So we got to do things that'll build up that confidence. So we've got to take those risks. We've got to build that incremental sense of confidence and mastery over something, and that will then translate down into into feeling better. And, and that's really worth it. It's uh, because it's, uh, uh, I, I mean, listen, we can grow pot here. I live on 200 acres. I got neighbors that all grow pot. Every year they bring me some plants. I don't smoke it, but I'm a master at it. I know everything about it. I can make hashish. I'm, I'm like, I still got old screens in the garage. I smoked it for 40 years. Hmm. I can't. Smoke. It's just one of those uh, ironies of life that I waited 40 years for them to legalize it. And the year that they legalized it, I stopped smoking it completely. <laughs> that's the way shit happens right so yeah yeah. so 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 we could but i can't smoke it anymore i can't i just can't i just can't do it anymore because i put so many times i've done something else instead that that feeling is no longer it's not even a factor Mm. zero inclination to do it Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't drink anymore. Don't do any. Just because I know, why would I give up my confidence? Why would I give up this much confidence of mine? That's why I'm greedy about it. That's I have to be selfish about my confidence because that's our juice. That's our power as men, and and we need that. We need that because when we use our power in service of ourselves and others, we create a life of meaning, and it's what sets us free from the tyranny of our existence. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, this is an absolutely critical uh, thing for a man to, to rise up and uh, and take on that challenge. So the um, this uh, this kind of answered the question I was going to ask is about confidence as a man. Um, um, if you go through, hold on, let me back up here a second. So we have, let's say we have an addiction, whatever it is, um, and Pete. Uh, there's the beating myself up for relapsing and whatnot. Now, if we flip it around and look at it as an um, opportunity for growth or opportunity, what are, what are things that people learn that we, they would not have learned if they had not been addicted? Well, yes, this is it. Usually what you find is you have a greater appreciation for time if they can get straight uh, because then they can go, oh, my goodness. Um, and... and and, you know, I think it's almost like a slingshot or not a slingshot, but an elastic. You know, you've got all of this pent up um, spirit mm. that's been that's been um, uh, denied 
because addiction is a denial of spirit. So you deny the spirit for all those years and then you let it out. Ooh. And you don't let it out as an 11-year-old or a 16-year-old. You're letting it out as a, as, a, as a grown man who's maybe 30 or he's 35 or he's 40 or he's 50. Mm. And he finally gives it up. Now all of that denial of spirit comes rushing forward, just like a, like a, like a, a ghost in him and says, hey, thanks for letting me out of the cage. Yeah. And so it, it really is. And so now he, he often lives life um, better than the people around him. Mm. And I think it's almost like that elastic, you know, was pulled. And so now it's, it's got extra force in it. And so then the spirit launches forward into the future because he, and, and often you find that people have this enormous gratitude that, Oh my God, I can't waste another minute. And Oh my God, I get to serve. And people carry shame with them most of their lives. Mm. People like me, I had a piece of shit syndrome for years and years and years. And it's family of origin and stuff. When you're brought up that way, you're, no parent goes into parenting intending to screw a child up. Let me just say that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, everybody's got the best of intentions. And then what happens? They get in, they, everything's going fine, and then stress has happened. Jobs, sickness, health, moves, whatever else. Uh, relationship issues. And their family of origin programming rears its ugly head, and all of a sudden the child is, um, and children experience their environments physically. They inco because the body is where people live, remember? So you're always bringing in whatever's happening in your environment. And, and children experience families physically, and so they inculcate that forever afterwards. So, so, so I think, no, you know, so not to knock parents, but that kind of thing happens, and it gives us a chance to, to unravel some of that and realize, oh, my God, you know, I've never dealt with this. I'm 50 years old and I still feel like a piece of shit. This isn't right. I've done all of these good things. Why do I still feel bad? It's the shame of my youth. Mm-hmm. I still feel somewhere deep inside me that I'm a bad person. Mm-hmm. And that's a big one in addictions. A lot of people who are addicted have shame. Well, listen, when we understand shame like that, the first thing we need to do is recognize that it's there. Because as soon as you recognize it's there, you bring about the possibility that you can do something about it. Right. Okay. Because if you don't recognize it's there, if you just have that sort of shitty feeling about yourself and you never talk to anybody about it, you never try to discover what that's about. Well, your chances are you're not going to do much about it. But as soon as you recognize it and label it and say, aha, I'm on to you, Shane, you can now introduce the possibility of changing it. Then what you do is you externalize it. Aha. You feel it. You know, uh, somebody criticizes you fuck that hurts because and maybe you're defensive and then maybe you had an argument so then when you're thinking about it fuck, you know here they are giving me feedback and i just jump bit their head off where's that coming from well it's my shame mm. that's the little boy inside me trying to survive mm, mm, mm. he's fighting for all odds for for his life that's what that is Mm-hmm. My little less, my little less, my spirit in there, my little inner self that's been that that was told that he was bad somehow, either by circumstance or actually told that he was bad, and that and he's been carrying that pain all this time. Let him out, and understand, externalize, and say, "Look, little fella, it's okay, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You can. This is, and I can let that shame go. I can say that's just my shame. I don't need to carry that today. I don't need to feel that now. So here's what happens." 
So you get, you get a guy who's, you know, he carries shame, mm. he gets criticized, he reacts terribly defensively. Somebody calls him an asshole. Now he grows up, right? He's in, somebody calls him an asshole. Boom, bang, bang, fights. This, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now he's, girlfriend's mad, cops come, put him in prison for the weekend, <laughs> maybe he loses his job on Monday. Mm. Well, you do that two or three times, and then one day, you know, he's thinking about this shit, and one day somebody calls him an asshole and goes, you know what, sometimes I am an asshole. There's no fight. His girlfriend is not mad at him. The police mm. didn't come. He didn't go to jail. Still has a fucking job on Monday. Mm. All right? He agreed with the possibility. Yeah, maybe sometimes I am. Okay, so now he's just built something there. So now somebody else criticized him. A week later, something else. He gives us some possibility. Yeah, the odds are maybe possible. Maybe that's true. Maybe I was lacking or maybe I didn't I came up short or maybe I didn't forget that so you do that five or ten or fifteen or twenty or fifty times and before you know it, he's got new emotional muscle now when somebody criticizes me goes it's curious oh interesting did I miss up there okay let me tell me what you think so now he's now he's a new guy now he's taken his shame and he's 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 put it out in front of him said I don't have to react like that let's deal with what's going on in front of me Let's not let that little boy that was shamed as a child when he was just a little guy, that little inner self uh, who was squashed, who was stomped on, who was maybe caged back then. Let's not let him rule. And I'm going to tell you something else. I think probably for men, and this is unscientific, Tom, but I think probably 15% of men, that's my unscientific sort of, you know, guess. I think 15% of men are fear seekers. That when they were little children, when they were little boys and girls, they had fear imprinted upon their souls. Hmm. And when somebody is had a terrible sickness, you see this with people coming back from war with PTSD, uh, when they've had you know, a traumatic childhood with violence and, and, and abandonment fears. When those kinds of fears... Um, when somebody experiences as a child, because we experience our, fa- our environments physically, that is impressed upon us. We can become habituated to cortisol and, and adrenaline. Mm. When, and, and most men who are addicted to drinking are, and smoking pot and even cigarette smokers are addicted to cortisol and adrenaline. And when they're, when they're not in a fear state, they feel a little restless, like a little not sure what to do. Um, there's a really good quote. I um I don't know if I have it here. There's a really good quote that I I found. Uh, uh, oh yeah, right here. This uh, so this, I caught Gabor. I don't know if you know who Gabor Mate is. He's written a bunch of books. Wrote a very beautiful book on addictions to the downtown east side in Vancouver. I, I used to know the big circle of boys that used to feed heroin into that area all the time. Hmm. Anyways, in his book. Um, When the body says no, he says, he writes on page 28, for those habituated to high levels of internal stress since early childhood, it is the absence of stress that creates unease, evoking boredom and a sense of meaningless. People may become addicted to their own stress hormone, adrenaline and cortisol, Hans Selye observed. To such persons, stress feels desirable, while the absence of it feels like something to be avoided. Mm. So he, he assigned that quote to Hans Selye. Hans Selye was a big stress researcher 
um, uh, I think it was Hungarian origin, but he worked out of Montreal here in Canada. And he wrote, uh, I've got a few of his books here. So Gabor Mate said, Hans Selye said that. And, um, and what it, it, I looked through all Hans Selye stuff. I went to the Hans Selye Institute and tried to find that quote and where he wrote that. And he didn't. Gabor Mate, uh, I wrote him and he told me, he said, actually, that's me. <laughs> he says, it's a synthesis of what Hans Selye was telling it. And I have to agree with him. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated him telling me that. No, that was me. I, I made this quote up and assigned it. Because it's so Hanselli, if Gabor Mate would have said it himself, it would have been like he was, he came up with it, but no, no, no. Mm-hmm. It's Hanselli's work that, that did this. And, and what it does is it, it just tells you, because we're, we're learning organisms. So if you're used to one thing, well, that's what you'll go and seek in life. Mm. So if you're used to adrenaline and cortisol coursing through your body, well, that's what you look for. And drugs and alcohol can be an easy um, substitute. Mm. for that some people now won't become addicted to drugs. maybe they they climb mountains maybe they do some other high risk sort of behavior that they get their their thrill their their um their adrenaline and cortisol fix you know um but there's a i i think it's at least 15 percent of the male population these type of people meet fear at a completely different level than other people when they see fear when something is scary they move towards it rather than away from it Mm. And you send guys like that to war, they either come back with a chest full of medals or they come back in a body bag. Mm. There's no middle ground for these motherfuckers. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. and, um, and, so, and so now, why would we have people like that? You know, well, you could see that nature would, would benefit from having a percentage of the population as being fear seekers who being able to handle fear at a higher level than other people. Who, who move towards fear. These are the guys who, you know, back in the day in the small villages, maybe the chief says, you know, Tom, you got balls. You're going to watch tonight. Mm. I, I need you to check the perimeter. So these are the guys who are guarding us. Uh, uh, Tom, you know, we think the enemy's in the next valley. We need you to go scout it out. Mm. Send this guy because he's fucking fearless motherfucker, mm. right? Mm. That's who we send. And those kinds of people perform a great function. But when we... Those kinds of people with that kind of amazing power deny their spirit with alcohol mm. and drugs. We don't get the benefit of it, do we? Mm. Right. You see, because yeah. that's an ama- that's an amazing strength. These yeah. people can then fight through resistances that other people maybe not. And I think that there's some kind of a natural now. Of course, I'm just pulling this out of my ass. Sure. Yeah. But I think it's an educated guess. Uh, uh, I don't have time to do all the anthropological, you know, sort of research on it, but I think that there's something to that, that I think that there's a reason why there's a certain percentage of the population tend to be what I call a fear seeker or, 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 or have this, um, this uh, ability to withstand uh, fear and stress better than the next guy. And uh, those guys are highly, highly susceptible so if there is, an, um, and I noticed in one of your questions, is there a, a genetic component to it? If there is a genetic component to it, I believe that's probably where it comes from. Because if we remember, you can be passed on traits from your dad and your grandparents through the methyl groups for several generations. Mm. Pottinger's uh, cats uh, figured that out in the 40s, and, uh, and, and, and it's been confirmed in the many, many times that traits are handed down or that the environment has an impact on your DNA, you mm-hmm. know, epigenetics, right? So, yeah, epigenetics, so yeah. I, 
yeah, so I think there's a, I think there's something to it. So when they talk about a genetic component, I'm not sure that they're going to find a particular uh, chromosome that this is where addiction lives in people. But I think that there's an influence definitely from your ancestry. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I like to say is I say the soul exists because we sense it's there, while the spirit is its calling. The spirit is a calling from the soul. One is more past, one is more future. One is more static, the other moves. The soul is epigenetic influences on your ancestral DNA passed down through methyl groups, contrasted against humanity's collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Again, a reference to Jung. Yeah, yeah. The spirit moves in your life and the present. Lifted at sunrise, at the stars, at nature, at each other. It's also what calls us often as a stirring and therefore more an action. Each of us has a spirit, an essential self subjugated as children internalizing ego to conform to the adults on whom we depend for survival. Mm-hmm. Later, we adopt persona, masks we wear at work, at home, at play, etc. And these may bury our spirit further. And I'll tell you one final note about spirit. And, you know, Gabor Mate, when he wrote his book, uh, um, uh, I have it right up here. It's his ghost book in the realm of the hungry ghost, which is a Buddhist reference. And it's a a fantastic accounting of his time when he was um, a doctor at, um, I think, the Portland Hotel in in, uh, downtown East Side, where they ran a clinic. And this is where we really have our most uh, down and out population here in Canada, and a lot of heroin addiction. And uh, so he wrote an accounting of there, and and it forced him to confront his own addiction and how he and I don't think he's got all of the answers, but he knows a lot. And uh, he thinks it's really trauma-based, but I think he's, he misses uh, the things that I'm teaching here today. Hmm. Uh, that it's a, it's a narrowing of spirit, that it's the sensory input confidence continuum, that it's the dopamine chunking. These are important parts, and it's a denial of spirit. But the denial of spirit part, Gabor Mate has got. Uh, he's really been on a quest, and, and of course, I shot heroin for 10 years. I did cocaine for 15. I, I smoked hash for 40 years. I drank for, you know, most of those years as well. So I have a long, I stuck a needle in my arm for 10, 12 years. So I have a lot in it. And I always dealt back in those early days. So I never had to steal from my, my supply, but, uh, um, but, but anyways, so, you know, I, I've had more experience in that sense. But Gabor Mate now has been experimenting with ayahuasca to oh. try to get closer to that inner self. Mm. And he talks about it. And I, you know, I just, I just chuckle when I hear it because this, is, this denial of spirit is, I think, what lies at the heart of addiction and our tendency to become addicted. We take this shortcut rather than understanding that this is our inner self speaking. And that's really what we need to answer is that calling from the universe to be more powerful to rise up and do what we were supposed to do, to give to the world, to the system that we belong in, not just what we want or because we can, because we owe it, because we we won the race and our prize was a life. Mm. And, so, and the universe doesn't make mistakes. We have a place in it. And when we understand that, it's much easier to set forward and, and go do the work that we need to do so that we become whole again. Mm-hmm. that's uh yeah it's like uh the the craving as you explained it's like it's a calling for who you are meant to be yes so yeah yes. so 
Yeah. It's, it's asking you to be more powerful. Mm, mm, mm. It's, it's the craving. The trigger is, come on, you know, step up. Because it comes from the body, the craving. Mm. The body, it's the body. It's, it's terroception. And if it comes into consciousness, it's already happened. So when if you get a triggering a, a craving, you're answering now dopamine learning and your 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 mental constructs will think, okay, that means I need to roll a joint or I need to go to the liquor store, I need to eat a box of donuts, or I need to watch porn, or I need to go to the casino, or I need to go on a shopping spree. All of these things may come to your mind is but that's not what it, it's it's a feeling. Hmm. It's a trigger. It's and it's and it's the universal feeling. It's it's a, a it's an interoception of hey it's a calling from that inner self to become more powerful to step up and be who you're supposed to be that's mm. what a trigger that's what a craving is and mm. and when you can reframe that craving as as the calling from the spirit mm. you can begin to answer the life that you were destined to live yes <clears throat> I <laughs> I have a personal experience to attest to that. So I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. So um, this is um, a thing I've seen before is within like my own extended family as well is there's like an addict and, but there are people who truly care for them and they're at a loss for what to do. Is there any advice you would have on that situation? Like, is there like one thing or not, not just one thing, but anything that could, what's the word, push that person into the direction of overcoming their habit? You know, it's a really tough one because you don't want to break connection, you know, and, mm. and disappoint Johan Harry in his wonderful TED Talk, you know, yeah. connection is the answer to addiction, and, uh, um, and which it's not, by the way, because when you're addicted, who do you get addicted with? Other fucking addicted people. Misery right. loves company. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, when I was, uh, you know, when I was in that subculture, the heroin subculture, I had all kinds of buddies. We we're all looking. And, and the thing about heroin is that all you have to do is worry about supply. Right. So you're narrowing a focus is all about where we're getting high next. What a great mm -hmm. relief. That's mm -hmm. what it is. It wasn't the buzz. The buzz is actually kind of uncomfortable. It just puts you to sleep. Hmm. And, and, and the first times you do heroin, you're vomiting. But I think for people who have um, uh, relatives and or friends or close people, I think you should tell them you're denying your spirit. I think you hmm. should tell them that you're addicted to fear. Hmm. All right. And get them thinking, you know, and say, what are you doing with your confidence? That hmm. was your juice. Hmm. You can ask them those questions. I mean, but unless an, an addict gets this, and usually I do it like an in-depth 90-minute talk with somebody about this stuff. Hmm. By the time I, sometimes people stop using right away. They just, that, that's it. I'm not, fuck this shit. I'm not giving up my confidence for to smoke a joint. What a weak-ass bullshit thing that is. I'm hmm. going to go out and do something with my life. Hmm. Because everybody thinks they have time, but they don't have, none of us have time, right? Hmm. I'm going to stop time by being more powerful. Hmm. So, so. A loved one, you can use tough love. It's all context dependent. Yeah. I'll tell you, you know, it, 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 it's, it's risky, you know, um, because tough love can push somebody down and, and really just fulfill their sense of shame even harder, mm. you know, and, and, and trigger their abandonment fears. Maybe they've had those since they were children. Mm -hmm. You know, my father, I was 
coming down off of heroin and uh, and I was in the civic hospital and, and of course they were worried that I had AIDS or hep C or something and this was in the mid 80s. Anyways, they had me in one of those locked wards with a little window that they, you know, they look in like a, anyways, I'm in there and my mom came to visit and hmm. um, so she came by and she asked me how I was and usually mom is very uh, warm and loving and but she was very abrupt and asked a few questions and the nurse had come in and gone and I could see out in the hallway. My dad was pacing up and down the hallway. Hmm. So he came in. Uh, so, so mom was there and, and, but she was very short with her answers. And usually she's, you know, she's probing. She asks open ended question, gets me talking. But she wasn't, she was very short. And then she just stopped and she said, well, dad wants to talk to you and out the room. She went, she left. Hmm. My father comes in, he's dressed in a suit jacket and he's retired by then. And he said to me, he said, Christopher, and you know, I, I was a gangster on the street for 10 years by then, or maybe even longer. And I'd been to prison, I'd gone to the pen and on and so forth. Or maybe it was before I went to the pen. But anyways, he said to me, he said, Christopher, he says, if you keep it up, you're going to die. And I got nine brothers and sisters. And when you die, we're going to gather together as a family and we're going to bury you. And then we're going to forget you. And he walked out of the room. I was so pissed off, <laughs> right? Mm. You know, I was like, you fucker, how dare you speak for my brothers and sisters, you know? And this was my father, who, you know, sort of, he was a violent man when I was a kid. Mm. And so, so, you know, I had, a, I had, I had a, a bit of a chip on my shoulder still at that point with him. Did that help me get better? No, but it helped me develop compassion for him later on as I thought about that situation. Because when I really, at first I was really mad at him, but as I grew, once I finally started to get my shit together, I real, I, I remember the look on his face. And although he came across angry and, and pointed and almost cruel, I think I thought, saw his lip quiver. Mm. just just the slightest little bit mm. and so it wasn't that he was trying to hurt me he was trying to love me in the only way that he could mm. you know mm. so sometimes tough love is a is a it's good because it helped me it, it, it opened once i started to get straight and and then started to go on my i went back to school and behavioral sciences and on and so forth but that opened up a little door to greater compassion for him of his struggle as a father, five boys, four girls, and nine kids. And here I was this black sheep who just went right off the rails. And, you know, it was in the fucking newspapers, you know, what I mean? <laughs> shooting people. And, you know what I mean? And Chris Wallace, a well known Ottawa criminal, you know, stuff like that in the papers, you know. So, so um, it, you know, I, I developed compassion for him that at least he tried. You know, he, this is all he knew. He was a AA guy. And, um, so, 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 but I'm not a big advocate for tough love. I don't think that it's, I think it can drive a person's abandonment, fear and, and sense of shame even further hmm. and leave them out there longer and they may die, hmm. you know, because it's very risky to use drugs and alcohol and to, um, to live that kind of um, a risky life. Even, even sex addiction is like that. It's very risky, you know, gambling, you know, hanging around casinos, you know, there's always somebody there who's going to lend you money before you know it, you're into the loan sharks. And now you own the freaking, you know, the, the Chinese mafia that hang around these places. And, and, and now they're coming to collect and they're, you know, you're breaking your arms and legs. And, 
So, you know, you're into the loan shark. So it's all very, you know, it's very difficult. So mm. I don't, I don't think tough. I think you just say, I, I believe in you. I think you can do better. Mm. Right? I think you're denying your spirit. And I'm wondering when you're going to come wake up and, and live the life that you're supposed to live. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best thing you can say to somebody. Mm. You know, I believe in you. I know mm. you'll do it. You'll fix this. And then maybe one time when they're, fuck, I did it again. Oh, my credit card's maxed again. Mm. Oh, I just lost all my money at the casino. Or I, I'm hungover. Or I just, my wife just left. I just lost my job again. You know, or I'm, oh, fuck I'm, I'm withdrawing. I'm, 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 I'm sick from heroin withdrawal. Maybe they'll think of your kindness. You know, your, that, that connection where, oh. where, you know, you ask them to be something more. Maybe, oh. you know, maybe they'll think of that and, and maybe that'll come back to them because you, people say, well, you can't change people. Bullshit. Bullshit. We change each other all the time. I've done all kinds of things because my wife has, has, has encouraged me or has demanded that I be better, which is what women do in, in marriages, in good marriages. They demand that you be better. She wants you. She needs a powerful man. So I think, I think the idea to hide behind, well, you can't change it. You, know, you, you, you can only do that when you decide bullshit. You can influence people. Anybody can be walked, Fat Tony told me. It's just a question of approach. Fat Tony was a gangster, I knew. I, I kind of infer that from the name. Um, <laughs> wow, that's powerful stuff. Um, the, um, the whole shame topic that's coming up. Um, one thing I found useful personally, um, the, um, anyone who's listening who, if you're going through an addiction or whatnot, and you find the feeling of shame is to, um, it's that little boy, as Christopher mentioned, is to, sit on a couch and visualize, oh, where, where's the part of me that has the shame? And then you won't, you won't physically see um, the, um, uh, this part of you. However, it, it, kick, it opens up stuff in your mind, uh, your subconscious that opens you up to more awareness and you can actually have a conversation with yourself. And you can say, so what's going on? Um, what are you scared of? What are you ashamed of? And then just that, that first step of awareness is perhaps the biggest step. And then once that happens, you just, you just, it's hard to explain. You kind of intuitively know it might be the spirit coming through saying, ask yourself these questions and then just popped up. Um, that has been my personal, um, exercise. Once I learned about it, it was very mm-hmm. whew, like, yeah. So yeah. You, you can externalize it and have a conversation with the, your your shame. You really can. Yeah. And and you know, I, I, we ask people some of the questions I like to ask them is how will you listen to it, to your spirit when it calls? Sorry, my voice is coming in. What's up, buddy? What do you need? Yeah, no problem. Where's my bunny? It's not in here, honey. Sorry. <laughs> your bunny? <laughs> okay, close my door. <laughs> my six-year-old. Okay, that's yeah. a bunny. That's it. He's on a mission. <laughs> yeah, we want to. And, you know, you can use <clears throat> motivational interviewing. You ask these questions. Um, you know, somebody's thinking, you know, I, I really should give up the booze. Why would you want to change? You know, now they have to explain to you why they want to change. So now they're going to hopefully 
give you good reasons for it. Well, when you voice something, because we think out loud, hmm. we, we, you know, we, we, we throw our thoughts out there and, and we use our words that way. And then we, they hang in the air in front of them. We try them on for size. So hmm. if we encourage people to talk, that's kind of important. Hmm. If you wanted to stop drinking, what would you have to do? You know, what would you, what, what, you know, I don't care if you do or not. It's not I'm not drinking. It's you, right? Hmm. Hmm. Um, Give me three reasons why you'd stop. Three? Well, I'll tell you one. You know, I'm not going to keep my job. Well, I guess Mrs. isn't very happy either. I guess I'd be a better father. Well, now he's just voiced three things that, you know, that have helped him. How important is that to you to make that kind of change? Why would you do it? You know? Um just in a quiet moment, you know, in a one-on-one talk with somebody. How important is it for you to make that change? Why? Why is it important to you? Maybe they voice some kind of a, a reasoning as crooked or as, or as incomplete or as inadequate as it might be. Let them voice it. Mm-hmm. So um, what do you think you're going to do about this? Well... Yeah. All of that may make them, their mind expand with so many thoughts that they, they feel the need to go narrow their focus, mm. you know, and, and maybe they'll drink again. But maybe they'll also remember, well, it was kind of you to ask me those things. I'm asking myself those same questions. Mm. And, uh, and, and hopefully they, they come to some kind of a, um, they have an epiphany. It's epiphanies that help people stop. They say they one day go, you know what? Sometimes you talk to people and say, one day I was just sick and tired of it. Hmm. Another time it'll be, I looked at my children and I have to, you know, people say, well, you can't change. Well, with those children just influenced that man. He quit for his kids and later he quit for himself. Hmm. If I didn't stop drinking, my wife would have left me. Hmm. Well, that's pretty good influence. Yeah. So maybe he stops drinking in order to save his marriage, but later on he stopped drinking to, and he grows himself as an individual. And he, he, as he learns to, to stop denying his spirit and to gather in his self and to, and to grow as a person and to bring his power into and consolidate that inner self. So you definitely can influence people. You know, you ask them, well, how long are you going to be able to do that before it kills you? Straight face. Yeah. Yeah. Closing yeah. question. Yeah. You know, first person to answer loses, you know, like yeah. in sales, right? Yeah. How long you need to be able to do that before it kills you? Mm. You know, yeah, just straight up. I want better for you. Mm. Wow. That's uh, you know? yeah, that, that genuine connection. I just straight up yeah. want better for you. Yeah, totally. I want better for you. Yeah. You're worth it. I want mm. better for you. What, me? Me? Piece of shit me? He may say in his darkest hour later on as he's narrowing his thinking, maybe when he narrows his thinking, that's what he'll focus on. Mm. I want better for you. Maybe that will resonate in his mind like an echo. You know? Mm. An echo from his his his, his ancestral, um, you know, birthright. His family, the people who loved him, who cared for him. Listen, Tom. And you've probably heard me say this before, but find it early, find it late. We must all find love. Yes. Yes. You know, even, even us tough guys, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> even people who are, you know, 
seen as pretty rough around the edges. It's love that's, that counts in the, in the end. Hmm. Nobody gets to be 80, 90 years old and they're at their deathbed. And, oh, I wish I put a pool in the backyard or I wish I had a Ferrari. No, 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 no. All of their talk is about, I wish I had connected more with my children, with my wife, with my family, with my friends. Hmm. It's all about the people. That's what it's all about. Hmm. And so it's all about love. Hmm. And this is really what uh, is, is our our greatest birthright. This is what is the greatest manifestation of our spirit. Hmm. And so that's really what um, we need to remember and keep focused on. Hmm. Well, uh, thank you, Christopher, for that uh, in-depth and kind of a varied explanation. I mean, there's, there's lots of, uh, how can I put this? The initial, I'm just going off my intuition here. The initial, um, awareness of addiction is someone has a habit it's bad and Mm. we just need to stop it um Mm -hmm. that's just my the general awareness um for the average person whatever that means so today we have a very very easily how can i put this very easy to understand step-by-step explanation of what's going on um how we can um, how with that awareness we can use it to be who we're meant to be. Like it's it's literally a calling. Come on, be more powerful. It really is. Um, it, yeah. There was one thing I wanted to say, and and I, I I always like to say this. Yet if we listen, the spirit calls us, and it is the blessing of the universe <clears throat> in its infinite wisdom, mm. <clears throat> the force behind the sun and the stars, the same one that gave each of us life and demands that we manifest a powerful existence. The soul and the spirit are then part of the inner self, that part of you which contains your potential and possibilities. Hmm. This is key, derived from your past, hence it's the soul and all of your future potential and possibilities, hence the spirit. Hmm. And we should listen to it. Hmm. Beautiful. I Stay powerful, my friends. Never give up. I agree. As uh, Kasher just said, stay powerful. It's uh, his phrase. I'm going to borrow it for a second here. Stay powerful. <laughs> I always say uh, keep being powerful. Um, and uh, yes. so thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. It was a pleasure.